Evolutionary.org presents Evolutionary Hardcore Podcast with your co-hosts, Steve from the American Underground and Mobster from the UK Iron Den. Get ready for the most hardcore and underground info in the industry. And here we go. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. Evolutionary.org. Hardcore podcast, guys. Love that intro. Steve Sme here in the Mobster. What's up, buddy? All good, apart from this damn foot injury. Don't drop weights on your feet, people. <laughs> I think it's broken, but we, we, I'm going to have to go back to the hospital soon and uh, check out the NHS here in the UK. They, they went last week. They didn't plaster cast me, strap me, or boot me. I've got an appointment with the consultant uh, Monday. And uh, I'm convinced it's, it's still red, it's still inflamed, it still hurts. So we're going to get that sorted. But uh, yeah, we plow on. I kept, I kept on training when I injured it. I've kept on training since then, and I will keep on training. Uh, and, and just don't tell, the, don't tell the doctor. Keep it between us, everybody. So guys, you can follow Mobster on his log, and he'll be updating people on the status of his foot injury. Very easy to break a foot, especially if you drop away toes you know, are very easy to break. So hopefully he heals up soon. And then it's, uh, you're going to the beach. You said it was your birthday coming up, right? Our birthday's uh, tomorrow. And we've got a heat wave here today. I'm told 36 or 37 degrees in London, even uh, late twenties, early thirties up here in the valleys. And I'm down to the beach first thing tomorrow morning before the crowds with a picnic and uh, yeah, making the most out of my birthday. 56. God damn it. Yeah. So 35 Celsius is how much fahrenheit it's about, I'm gonna say what, 90, 95 yeah, 95 fahrenheit that's that's crazy yeah. all right guys so we're going to talk about this podcast it's going to be a really cool podcast because last one we did dorian yates life and history and what he he ran his steroids what they got they guys like him run today today we're gonna do the same thing but this time it's gonna be with arnold schwarzenegger now arnold schwarzenegger even though he wasn't born in the united states um, you know, obviously we're a country, you know, a very diverse country from all over the world. So a lot of, uh, Americans, um, look up to this guy. Um, he's basically in the United States considered our greatest bodybuilder of all time, even though he wasn't born in the United States. And a lot of you may not know that he was actually born in Austria. So his accent that you hear isn't just like a stereotypical bodybuilder accent from California. That's actually his Austrian accent from Central Europe. And after he immigrated to the United States, he managed to keep a pretty strong accent and actually made him a lot of money in, in movies because he was able to play, basically create that dumb stereotype meathead for a lot of the movies he played, um, which involved you know a lot of comedies he did and stuff. I was, I was going to say, if you, we could argue about who's the greatest of all time as a bodybuilder, but the most successful bodybuilder outside of the uh, titles, and he had plenty of titles, he's probably made the most money. Uh, Jay Cutler's a, a distant second. He's been the most successful as an actor, certainly uh, $25, 30000000 million percentage of gross. And then uh, we know he's been a politician, governor of California, two terms. Uh, he was the the athlete, the 
person who wasn't born in America for, for which they said that they might change if anybody was going to get the rule change that you had to have been born in an American state in order to become president of America it was going to be Arnold he was that yeah. dominant that, that yeah power. actually our um, our laws aren't actually you don't have to be born in the American state believe it or not um, you have to be just uh, nationalized like an American that, national so so you right. could have you have like a parent from the United States but be born in Canada or be born in, in like overseas in the military so yeah, but I mean, yeah, that they would have to change the law. But yeah, that's not going to happen at this point. Um, but the thing, the, the maybe the smartest thing he did, Monster, to build his wealth is Mary uh, Maria <laughs> Maria Shriver, who is a part of the Kennedy family, which is a very wealthy family in the United oh. States, Irish descent, and they yeah. made a lot of uh, their, uh, I believe the great grandfather or grandfather made a lot of money um, in the early to mid 1900s. Um, so he actually failed at his marriage. He divorced. Um, he got caught cheating with the maid. So they <laughs> divorced back in 2017. So he's been single ever since, but he's got five children and he still is out in California and he's doing a lot of stuff now um, with um, he's done some movies at his age now, but mostly he's been a philanthropy doing done a lot of philanthropy so he's been helping with with uh, with charities and stuff, and um, he's very very wealthy. He's worth estimated half a billion dollars. So he's definitely the most wealthy bodybuilder of all time. And it just shows you that you can parlay bodybuilding into wealth. You can parlay it into wealth. You can't just focus on bodybuilding. So he basically did the smart thing. He got out of bodybuilding at his peak. Then he went and he became um, a movie star. He did a lot of movies. Act action movies he got into comedies um his best movie of all time um critically acclaimed and oscar nominated was the terminator one and two and those two movies were clearly his his best movies um that he did and other than that you know he did some decent movies um i wouldn't say any of his movies were of any good quality but they you know some of them were enter entertaining um i like commando I don't know if you remember that movie, um, Mobster. Very stupid movie, very unrealistic, but it's kind of considered a cult classic. It's not like a, a good movie by any means or good, well-acted movie, but it was, um, it's, it, it, was, it was a cult classic from the 80s, I think, that we grew up watching. You remember the movie? I was going to say a Predator was probably the first Predator movie would be up there in terms of what he'd done. And I recall I've seen uh, one of the making of Predator movies, the, 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 the bit that comes with it, and... He, he, this was a movie, I think he brought the truck with the gym equipment to where the guys, Carl Weathers, etc., could come and train in the early hours of the morning with Arnold. I think Carl Weather tells a story about how they were trying to keep up with Arnold. So you got this whole vibe of the guys being very competitive, in spite of the fact that they were dealing with ter horrible terrain and, and, and you know, the, the, the issues of filming a, a movie on the edge of the jungle and so on and so forth. So you've got a lot of those Arnold-esque moments with the cigars, with, you know, you know the, alpha, the supreme alpha male kind of vibe and whatever else. The, the Terminator 2 with the whole thing with the motorbike. I mean, come on. You know, takes, takes the shotgun off the guy, gets on the motorbike, puts on the sunglasses and pulls away to a, a rocking tune. I mean, just there's iconic moments. And I think he even started to uh, satirise himself a little bit where, where he would do the lines, the words, 
you know, I'll be back and all that kind of stuff. So there's there's very few people that don't know that he was a bodybuilder. And that's, again, you know, the fact that other bodybuilders were trying to do movies couldn't. He, he, he knew that he would slim down. He would do the stay hungry stuff and drop down to 200 pounds, 212 pounds, whatever. And all these kind of things that the other guys wouldn't do. And, 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 and made those connections and was very much a person that was networking as you say, all the way up to getting married into the Kennedy clan. I mean, that's just crazy. Property, property stuff. He was doing property deals when he was getting $1,000 a month of Joe Wheeler when he first came to the States. As soon as he got any money, straight into property. Business deals with Japanese investors to, to buy airplanes off of airlines and then lease them back because they realized they could make more money in the long term that way. I think he, one of the, the things he says in his book, says that for every buck he put in, he wanted to be able to take two bucks out. So, you know, pol politically on the ball, monetarily on the ball, business on the ball, uh, networking like it was, like, like he'd been pretty much born to network, I guess, for the, for the film stuff. Uh, rivalries with Stallone, who's now one of his best buddies. The whole Dolph Lundgren, the Planet Hollywood thing even. I mean, absolutely every single dollar that's come out of bodybuilding has come with this business head on. And we're talking about essentially the son of a policeman. Um, it's not exactly the backwards of Austria, but we're not talking about, a, 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 it's a very small town. Um, training underneath the stadium. Ooh, I mean, yes, there's so many Arnold stories. And he's the number one guy to parlay every single thing he's done from then all the discipline and everything else that comes with bodybuilding into probably, I can't think of another bodybuilder, very few athletes have had that level of success and made something from that to what he does. So there you go, guys. You could get discipline with your diet, discipline with your training, and you can make that work for you outside the gym. And if anybody can teach you that, it's going to be Arnold. Of course, we're going to address the training, the supplements, the steroids, and the diet today. Back to you, Steve. So Arnold started trading at a young age. Um, his father wanted him to become a police officer like him, yeah. but Arnold was into sports. Arnold did a lot of played a lot of soccer. Um, he he and he liked bodybuilding as well. Um, but he ended up choosing to focus solely on bodybuilding, and he was 14 years old, which is around the age that I started lifting weights as well. And he really took a, a, a took well to it. And he would basically go to some um, gyms that were frequented by some big time guys like Reg Park or, and Steve Reeves. And you know what? He, you know, he started training and he was very, very committed to it. He would never miss a workout. He talked about, you know, that he would push himself. Even his brother um, passed away uh, from a drunk driving accident. And he even didn't even go to the, the funeral because he was so committed to, to not missing a workout. And he basically, he served in the army, in the Austrian army. And then he even quit that so he could compete in bodybuilding. So uh, yeah, go ahead. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to say one of the stories that comes with the army one is that there's a competition comes up. Now Arnold was a tank driver and of course Arnold being Arnold, the story that comes from even more from that is he brought a tank, I believe it's the tank that he drove in the army and that's one of the ones you can find YouTube videos of him driving this tank around for fun and doing stuff with other guys. So the story goes that he's in the army, he's I believe finished 
basic training, something like this, and a competition comes up and he decides he wants to do the competition, so goes AWOL. Goes off, competes, wins, comes back, gets arrested, gets put into the glass house, the block house, whatever you want to call it, and um, only <laughs> because he won, and there's this Austrian bodybuilder who's won, did they let him out, and they kind of sort of patted him on the back and said, don't make a habit of it, but now we're going to make as much out of you for winning this competition and being an Austrian soldier as we possibly can. Only Arnold would get into trouble and turn that into success. Uh, so, yeah, it's just, it's just so many stories, guys. Yeah. We're, going to, we're, going to, we're, we're, we're going to be trying to cram as many stories and, 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 and uh, what made Arnold Arnold into this episode for you today. So just so we'd have to do three episodes to give it justice. Back to you, Steve. Yeah, we might have to do a part two. So from there, you know, he flew the first time he ever flew on a plane to London and he competed in the NABBA Mr. Universe and he got second place at the Mr. Universe competition. Um, he didn't have as much muscle definition yet as Chester Yorton, who was an American, but the judges were very, very impressed. And one of the judges that was there actually offered to coach him. But Arnold didn't have money at the time. So he invited him to come stay at his family home and train with him. Yeah, I was going to say that that would be Wag Bennett. And bless him, he's uh, unfortunately deceased now. But I met and uh, had a good few chats with Wag Bennett. And in fact, side story. I co-created something called the Millennium Dumbbell. There were seven of these dumbbells, and Wag ended up with one of these dumbbells in his gym, famous gym on uh, over in, I believe, Romford. And um, his wife, Diane, used the Millennium Dumbbell as a memorial piece for, for a garden. So there's a story for you. Met and shook Wag's hand. There are photographs of him uh, as videos, old cine clips, Film eight, whatever you're seeing, eight uh, film clips onto video now of uh, Arnold posing in their back garden. And so, yeah, there's, there's a claim to fame. Mobs have met Wag, and Wag was the guy who, along with his wife Diane, had uh, Arnold stay with them and uh, teach him English and teach him English habits. There are photographs of him with the, uh, of, of, of the, the Dolly Birds, the, the 60s and 70s girls with the short skirts, because Diane had a, a dance troupe. So, uh, Arnold with very, very bad broken English was, uh, as we say, pulling the dancing girls and learning all about the English stuff and, and, and being shown wag very much sort of directing him and uh, a big influence. And in fact, I recall a friend of mine who's just passed away, a bodybuilder, Mike Dave Gentle, went to an Arnold Schwarzenegger birthday party. And I believe there's a photograph floating around on the internet where you can see um, Arnold and Wag and Dave Gentle all in the same photograph. So there's, there you go. Mobster knows everybody, but Arnold, the, only, the only one of the three I haven't met is and talked to and uh, as an association with his Arnold himself. He nearly came over to one of the OHF award dinners I used to attend. And uh, that you can, you can imagine, I'd, I'd have been queuing up with everybody else to get a picture of Arnold. Oh, and one more Arnold story from you. For my sins, I competed at the Mighty Mits at the Arnold Classic back in 2010. Uh, on stage between the grip guys, myself, and the strength athletes on the second day, having travelled down in, in the 60-litre caddy that we were using. I, at the very end of the event, I feel the need that I have to go to the toilet. And it's literally while I'm in the toilet, Arnold comes past 
everybody's grabbing photographs and I missed him by like one minute. <laughs> he actually stopped and had a chat with the guys and I missed him by one minute. So yeah, I, I, I'd like to be able to say that I've met Arnold, but I haven't quite managed that yet. And of course, finally, with regards to that thing, you've got uh, Eddie Hall. Eddie Hall, the famous uh, strongman, world strongest man winner, 500 kilo deadlifter, who's uh, now in business with Arnold. And we'll be doing a uh, Arnold Classic uh, strength thing here in the UK, I believe in 2021. So that'll probably be on uh, Mobster's list of things to do. I was gonna try and get to that event. I can only imagine if Eddie does half what they used to do at the Arnold Classic in the States, rather than body powder we've had here, that should be incredibly good. And if Arnold comes, yeah, let's get Mobster queuing up with that as well, for sure. Back to you, Steve. Yeah, so let's finish up a little bit about um, how he kind of rose up. So his training in London paid off in, in England because he won the Mr. Universe at the age of 20, and he became the youngest guy ever to win it. So, And he did win it three more times as well. So he went to business school back in Munich, and he worked in a gym, and he trained people. He worked out and he trained. And then he came back to London in the late 60s to win another Mr. Universe title. So he had dreamed to come to the United States since he was 10 years old. And he basically came to the United States as a, a basically illegal immigrant. And he lived um, in Los Angeles. And he trained in the original Gold's Gym in Venice. And Joe Wader... Joe Weider, Weider was his uh, supervisor, basically. And he kind of took him under his wing, and some of these other guys did too back in their early 70s, 1970 and 1974. And some um, other guys like Billy Graham, who was a professional wrestler, some of those guys. So at 23, this was in 1970, he captured his first Mr. Olympia title, and he would win a, a t seven of them. So he dominated the 70s. Um, winning the Mr. Olympia. His last Mr. Olympia was 1980. And that was a controversial one uh, because a lot of people felt like that he just got it because he was Arnold, That not that he def, uh, deserved it. But after that, he retired. And then he would start doing movies in the 80s. So, um, you know, you want to add anything else, Mobster, before we get into what he's probably used during the 70s to, to I, I, win all those titles? Yeah, I was going to say, we've got the, the, the outtakes uh, from Pumping Iron that suggest that he was uh, a supreme player of the mind games of other athletes. I believe the outtakes include him. Uh, he was, he'd memorised all of the other top guys' posing routines. You got him in Gold's gym. And, and I know Pumping Iron was set up in such a way as to make you believe that. But I believe one element that was true is that Arnold was the guy. He was the, the, the athlete. You've got top Mr. Universe and Mr. Olympia contenders in one room, I believe 25, 30 guys, and about 16, 17 of them are competing, and some of them are competing in the Mr. Olympia and Pumping Iron, and he was the guy. He was the one that everybody looked towards. He was, the, the, as I believe the line in the movie is the wolf up on the hill and everybody else is looking up. I mean, that was so true. The mind games that he played, that the way that he was able to parlay stuff in the business when the other guys were not, the way that he had three fingers going all at the same time, just there's so many things, I believe. I mean, he's got an office still in Venice Beach. You've got um, the stuff that he does now. It's, honestly, as I said earlier on, we could do three, three, we could do three podcasts on this, guys, just, just on the mind games. The, the, 
the, the line that was in the movie, which was made up with the whole business with the shirt and, 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 and the back and forth and whatever else and all that kind of stuff. But he, he, he would he'd come up to you and say, you know, so you've, I mean, I've done this for, for giggles. When you go up to a guy and you say, you look, you're feeling okay. And he goes, what do you mean? So you look a bit puffy, that kind of stuff. You're looking a bit off. And they go, what do you mean I look a bit off? Arnold was doing this incessantly, you know. Oh, we load the bar up with some proper weights now that I'm going to train and all this kind of stuff. So he was constantly playing mind games and he would be par excellence with that kind of stuff. He, he, he would know your posing routine so he could oppose you. He'd make sure that if you were doing one thing, he knew what to put up against you with, that, with his poses to show you his best stuff. And he was probably better at that than any of the other guys at the time. And in fact, something Steve and I talked about off camera would be, I think if he was like that in the 70s and right up to 1980, can you just imagine what he'd be like as an athlete with uh, YouTube, with Instagram, and the way that he would out-psych these guys now with the verbal back and forth? What he was doing then was private. It's only on camera because they went and filmed it. He'd be doing it in public now. He'd be doing it in interviews now. He'd be doing it in articles online. He would tear these guys apart now because it would be so much easier for him to do. So I think as a, as a, as a guy with the psych, with uh, the advances that we're going to address in a minute, with the, 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 the Psalms and with all the other drugs and things, I think Arnold will, will even now, 20 or 30 pounds heavier as he would be if he was an athlete. Now, he would destroy these guys with everything else that he had in his armory. Yeah, let's get on to the next basket, Steve. Yeah, so there were basically during the 70s, there were four, four steroids, four main steroids that guys used. Primobolin, they used Primobolin for the specific reason was that it gave you lean muscle tissue gains without any bloat. Back then, they didn't have access to anti-estrogens, none. They didn't have access to Novodex, Clomids, the CIRMs. They didn't have access to those. They didn't have access to AIs. Aromacin didn't even get invented until like the next freaking century. You know what I'm saying? Until the 2000s. So they didn't, they didn't have access to that stuff. So you couldn't use testosterone at that time. They didn't use testosterone. They used primobolin. They used DECA. DECA aromatizes a fourth or fifth as much as testosterone. So they used DECA durobolin, especially in the off-season. Dianabol. But they had to be careful with Dianabol because Dianabol, if you use Dianabol at a low dose, you don't need an AI. It won't puff you up. But if you start getting it, you start using it at 30, 40, 50 milligrams a day, it'll start puffing you up. Now, another thing, too, is guys at this time, the ones that were blessed genetically, one of the things they were blessed with is the ability to run a little more D-Bowl and a little more DECA than the other guys without bloating at the same time and without ended up ending up with bitch tits. So, um, and fourth one that they used Proviron because Proviron came around in the mid sixties and it was available by the seventies. So I'm very certain that those were the four that Arnold messed around with. I would say Prima Bone, he could, he would go, there's been some, um, you know, rumblings that he used Primobolin around 100 milligrams a day. So he would take one CC every day. That's 700 milligrams a week. That's a good Primobolin dose. So I have no doubt he used Primobolin and probably a little D-Bowl 
was his was his stack and maybe even Proviron with it. I'm, I'm reminded of two things when it comes to Arnold's uh, cycle of those times. One was his famous, very famous, and you can find this online, guys, Barbara Waters interview. She was the, uh, the, in the UK, we had a Michael Parkinson and then different athletes and film stars would come and speak to this guy. And Barbara Waters was doing this. I believe it was NBC. They, uh, you American guys can correct me on this. So he's gone on there. She sits him down. And she says, Arnold Schwarzenegger, one of the first things we're going to talk about is uh, your, whether you take steroids or not. And, and unlike it, pretty much every other athlete and bodybuilder, Arnold just said yes, straight away, with a big grin on his face. And he's an affable way that comes across so well. And of course, he points out now, as he did during the interview, that he was having these drugs prescribed to him legitimately, quite legally at that time, by a doctor, well-known doctor uh, around Venice Beach that was supplying the guys. But it was a prescription, all legal. So these are properly prescribed pharma quality drugs that are given to them under doctor supervision. And he says that during interviews then, and he says that later on. The only thing I was going to say in regards to, uh, to Arnold's drug cycle, it wouldn't be excessive by today's standards, but I believe this is in conversations, um, interviews with um, friends and uh, people that he was in competition with. Arnold was ever so slightly taking more than the other athletes. And Steve addressed the D-Bolt aspects where I'm looking here, uh, and I've seen these figures elsewhere, 60 and 80 milligrams and up to 100 milligrams a week. And I'm pretty sure that the, everybody else when was doing 30 was when Arnold started to do 60. Uh, so these, you know, we're talking about an incredibly driven athlete, pretty, very, very savvy, with legally prescribed drugs, with doctor supervision, but making sure that he was that bit more ahead of the guys. Now, the numbers compared to some of what we're doing today are fractional, tiny, you know, a quarter of what we'll see a, a professional athlete, especially a professional bodybuilder doing. But again, this is, we're talking about 100% more in some cases then the rumours had it that the other guys were doing. So, yeah, I'm, I, the, the famous cycle, and I'm looking at it right here, right now, when I'm talking to you guys, is the Decadurablin, the Dynabol, and the Primabolin. And, and this is pretty much what everybody agrees that they were taking. But if you look at the numbers that the other guys were taking, he was about 50 to 100% across the board on the numbers he was taking compared to his compatriots. So he was out there pushing the envelope. Steve and I are going to address it in a minute. But I'm pretty sure that Arnold's psyche, his need to win, his need to dominate, his need to be number one, literally, as per the famous T-shirt, El Numero Uno, would have him up there pushing the envelope now, which we're going to address that, that potential uh, today's cycle, if Arnold was uh, still competing. We're going to address that in a moment. But yeah, for sure. Double what the other guys are doing is the rumour, and this has come from some close friends and uh, competitors that he's uh, been around with over the years. Back to you, Steve. Yeah, we don't really know what he used off cycle, I mean, off competition, because they didn't take pictures. The only pictures we have of Arnold are him shirtless, like on a beach or in the gym or, or at a competition. We don't know when he had a shirt on and when he wasn't trying to show off what he looked like. So he could have in the off season ran a lot of steroids, built a lot of mass, then closer to the competition knew 
to kind of lower the dosages, get that inflammation down. And then he went on stage looking fantastic. So that's a possibility too. Another misconception is at that time, a lot of guys were walking around with bitch tits because they didn't know anything about antriestrogen. So it was all about side effects at that time were all about estrogen, like how much estrogen can cause the issue. Another thing they would do as well, which just changed from today, is pyramiding, which means they'd start at a low dose, then jack the dose up as the weeks went by, then jack the doses back down. They didn't really have an understanding of steroid esters. Now, did Arnold know more than other guys when it came to steroid esters? Probably. Um, I'm going to give you guys a little tidbit is that Arnold is an extremely intelligent guy. Extremely intelligent. We've seen that. The past five years, he hasn't done these stupid movies. He hasn't been bodybuilding where he has to show off that stereotype of the dumb meathead bodybuilder. The truth is, he's one of the most intelligent people out there. And in the 70s, no doubt, he was one of the most intelligent guys out there. Um, I would, I, and I've interviewed some of these guys from the seventies. I've interviewed Frank Zane. I've interviewed some of these other guys. He was definitely head and shoulders and more intelligent than these other guys. You can tell that. Um, now something like someone like Chris Aceto, one of the most intelligent guys I interviewed him. He's a, he's a coach now, one of the most intelligent guys I've ever interviewed. I talked to him off the podcast for like an hour and the guy is extremely intelligent. So you can tell that these guys, their success both being a bodybuilder and coaching bodybuilding has a lot to do with them being more intelligent than the other guys. So what, what, what do they do differently today? Today it's a lot more steroids. So I'll give you an example. Instead of using Primo, they're going to use something way more androgenic, way more anabolic. They're going to use Trenbolone today. Instead of being scared about estrogen, they're going to use testosterone tons of testosterone and cut it off before the competition so that the bloat's gone. They're going to throw a lot of AIs at their body. They're going to throw a lot. They're not scared to throw a bunch of D-Bowl, a bunch of Anadrol, a bunch of DECA at their body because they know that they can use drugs to combat any of the bloat. They're going to throw a lot of Anavar at their body. Anavar is a popular one. And then obviously Winstrol, drying out their body. Winstrol, lots of Winstrol, especially the last few weeks. Winstrol is very, very uh, quick acting steroid. And then the Masteron, of course, as the hardener. So these are all these compounds is what the guys use today. And then of course, non-steroids, insulin, HGH, DMP. Gosh, can you imagine if back then in the seventies, Arnold had access to all the stuff that guys have access to today? Can you imagine what he would have looked like with his genetics? It's hard to imagine, but Arnold may not have agreed with that type of bodybuilding and he may have chosen to do something else with his life uh be in business or something i'm i'm thinking of two things here one is that there's a website and i can't think of the name i saw a photograph some years ago where they would take bodybuilders like arnold and they would uh photoshop 20 or 30 pounds onto them and then compare them to say someone like ronnie coleman and there's a few of these photographs floating around out there and arnold at 260 i believe he was six six foot one uh, with this, with the extra 30, 20, 30 pounds that he would have felt. I believe his best stage weight was around 225. I believe he competed as heaviest was 235. Can you imagine Arnold at 260 pounds, uh, drier, 
with lines on the chest and stuff like we've seen in a few photographs, but you didn't see those ones on stage. And then, as, as I said earlier on, my gut feeling with the whole competitive streak, with the level of intelligence that Steve Smeekham refers to, with his drive to be successful, his drive to win, his drive to dominate, I guarantee he would have done the drugs that, that Steve Smith suggests for his cycle if they'd have been available. I guarantee he would have used an AI. He's, he would have wanted to win. You know, Arnold now, with that waist, with that taper, with his ability to, to, to pose what muscle he had up against a guy like Phil, up against a guy like Ronnie. I mean, Arnold's probably... of of any of the top Mr. Olympias of, of recent years, the best at the standard six poses, including standing relax. His, his, his little nuances, like that ability to pull in his waist, to do slight twists, to, to, to give that time, the, the appearance of time. Going off, I think Steve please mentioned something earlier on, when he went off and, and stayed with his idol and ended up dominating his idol. That's how driven this guy was to win. So this is one of the few times that I would 100% agree. He would do everything it took to win now. And if that meant high dosage, modern type cycles, it's one of the few times that his desire to win would have overpowered what my, I would have called a sensible cycle and put him into the, to the upper leagues with pretty much probably eight or nine steroids getting him done with, with, with uh, the gurus getting him ready for a competition. A lean, ripped, vascular, 260-pound Arnold Schwarzenegger. The mind boggles, Steve. It really does. One of the That's other it. things, too, that I wanted to mention before we move on to his diet and training is um, his father passed away um, during his training when he was in the United States, and he didn't even want to hear it. He was so just determined. He was basically like Dorian Yates. I'm focusing on one thing. I'm not going to worry about this here. I'm not going to worry about that. I just want to focus on this one thing in front of me. And there's no doubt that people like that, that if you look at any professional sport, you don't have athletes excelling at multiple sports. Okay, at the pro level, you have someone like Deion Sanders. Yes, he played pro baseball and he played pro football, but he was a Hall of Fame football player. He was not a Hall of Fame baseball player. So for him, you know, focusing just on football and then baseball on the side was possible. But most people, they won't even be able to do that. So Arnold just focused on one thing, went for it and got it. We don't multitask well as males. As males, we do not multitask well. So that's a lesson. Always focus on one thing and don't let other things distract you that are out there. Because if they do, you will not do well. You have to just 100% focus on it. And the guys that I've interviewed who are competing at Mr. Olympia today have had the same mentality. When I've asked them something, oh, have you followed this or that? They're like, no, I'm just focused on bodybuilding. And that's that's what you have to do to be at that high level. I think his drive to be successful, you touched on something earlier on when he was going to doing business studies, I, I believe UCLA, while he was uh, training in the morning, uh, chilling with the guys on the beach in the afternoon and then doing business studies in the evening. He was able to compartmentalize. I think this story about his father or, or indeed his brother, depends which version of the story you believe, 
it, it was an illustration of his ability to compartmentalize and focus on being successful as possible. So you, you've got him, uh, I said a business study, I believe he ended up with um, a master's or something crazy like that at UCLA, so the business studies, which enabled him to parlay the money. When, when he, there's a great story of his uh, plan, his supposed mythical plan of his, which says, come to America, win Mr. Olympia, then get into the movies, then make a million dollars, then become a politician. This, this plan is supposed to have existed around that summit. It's almost mythological. And it literally ticks each and every box. He did every single thing that he needed to do. He was able to compartmentalize whether it become emotionally, whether it was a business thing, whether it would be a training thing. So in the gym, he's just thinking about training. Uh, on the beach, he's just chilling with the guys and bullshitting, but maybe cycling them out for competition. Then in the evening, he's doing business studies. But all the time, he's got this great 10-year, 15-year plan. Most of us, we go to the gym because we enjoy it. You know, we're not thinking about some 10 or 15 years down the road. Arnold was driven in a way that... The, he, now, it's so difficult for the rest of us normal human beings. I'm a competitive weightlifter. I've, in my field, achieved some degree of success by being driven. But I believe, as Arnold would probably say to me, I'm a child compared to uh, Daddy Arnold when it comes to these kind of things. You know, it, it, uh, it's just, it's just. We'll get to the training stuff in a minute, but just these other elements and his ability to separate them out. Was one of the one of the key things of success that I hear uh, top businessmen do is segment their day in a fifteen minute or half an hour segment. I think this is what Arnold was doing. You know, training is this time, uh, chilling is this time, eating is this time. Oh, the other thing I was just thinking of. Some of you may recall he's done the the graduation speech uh, speeches and videos where he talks, for example, about how many hours there are in a day and how you should use these hours of the day and how I want you to go out, you know, sleeping for six hours, eating for three hours, training for two hours, and then what's your excuse for the rest of the day? And some of these videos are like the right up there with the motivational stuff and do your rounds. And, I mean, honestly, he's standing in front of two or three thousand graduates. The crowd goes crazy. They go crazy when Arnold comes out. They go crazy when the speech is finished because he sounds like someone who's just graduated himself and is about to grab the bull by the horns. And this is a guy in his late 50s, early 60s when he's doing his speeches. So that's what he's like then. That's what he's like now. And he sounds like a young teenager, someone in their early 20s is just about to go out and seize the world by the throat. And that's of a guy that's already practically retired and he's still driven like that. So that's what you're dealing with, people. And in fact, that's what you should learn. You should come away from this inspired, motivated, but look what Arnold did and does and how driven he is now. That's what you should take away. Right, let's go on to the training, Steve. Yeah, I was going to hit the, you want to hit the diet first and then go to the training at the end? Right. Is that cool? Yeah, so the, the diet, if you talk to some of the guys in Arnold himself, some of the guys, you know, who trained with him and hung out with him and we know this is this is pretty much the way they ate, Mobster. Um, Arnold would eat two, three, maybe four meals at the most a day. It's nothing like today, the way guys eat. Uh, because guys today are all taking HGH, insulin. The HGH kind of screws with your blood sugar. So then you take the insulin to drop your blood sugar back down. And in the process, you kind of got to roller coast it back up by eating a lot of food. 
you know, so it's a consistent roller coaster. They're completely manipulating um, their insulin sensitivity and insulin resistance and shuttling um, nutrients into the muscles to get the kind of size they have. So it's completely different. Back then, they didn't, they didn't mess around with their bodies like that. Basically, Arnold was all about eating clean. And then he would have a cheat day, usually on Sunday. They'd go down and walk around town. They'll have some ice cream. They'll, you know, they'll have a cheat, cheat meal, cheat day. That was how they ate. So a typical meal for Arnold was just a cookie cutter meal. I mean, very, very simple. He'd have a small steak, some rice, and some vegetables. And he, that's, that, that was pretty much his diet. It wasn't, it was a rocket science and you know what? It was organic. There wasn't preservatives. There wasn't the hydrogenated oils that are all drenched in our foods today from restaurants. It was all clean. He would just stay clean and it wasn't that complicated. And now it's completely different. Now guys are eating at least six meals a day, averaging maybe eight meals a day lots of insulin, pretty much any decent sized meal, you're going to have insulin before you eat that meal because you want to be able to shuttle in those nutrients. You're taking HGH twice a day. You're, you, and if you're, you may even do peptides, some, some GHRPs, GHRHs as well during the day. So all that is helping you shuttle in all that food. So they eat way more today. That's how it's changed. It's the, it's the amount of food it's the amount of times they're eating, and it's, it's completely different. Um, and then, you know, look, at that time, you know, things were different. Um, the food quality was way better in the United States in the 70s. Like, you didn't have conventional foods. Conventional foods didn't come around until the 80s. You didn't have hydrogenated oils in our food. So you could go out and eat. He could go out and eat at a restaurant. He was getting nutritious food. Now, you, you go to any restaurant, even a high-class restaurant, they're not, they're not putting good quality stuff on your food. So it's completely different. So nowadays you got to be more careful when you buy food or go to a restaurant, you got to be careful what you put in your body. And then some of the competitors today, even they'll eat, they'll eat bad food. Like, you know, Dave Palumbo says, Hey, I eat McDonald's. When I was competing, I would eat McDonald's and I'd get away with it because of, because of my genetics. But Arnold, he was not all about, Hey, I have great genetics. So let me eat crap. He never ate crap. There's absolutely zero evidence that he ever ate crap. I'm, I'm reminded that, that this is the, the influence that Arnold, and for that matter, his compatriots had in and around Venice Beach. I believe they went to a couple of places. One would be, I think it's at the Fire Station Cafe that bodybuilders still go to now. So this was a normal place that was serving relatively normal 70s, late 60s, early 70s, uh, mid-70s uh, food. Uh, but the bodybuilders started to come there with Arnold to the point where, of course, what happened is that the fans of the bodybuilders and especially the fans of Arnold started to visit the restaurant. So their, their menu started to change. It was what it was to begin with, which was good, wholesome food, as Steve's already said. But they actually started to realize that because the people were queuing up to watch Arnold eat, that they were coming to the restaurant when Arnold was there. So you ended up with a famous upper lip. I think Jay Cutler's got a meal after him that you can buy from, from a... Um, uh, Japanese food restaurant in uh, Las Vegas, you could buy the Arnold breakfast or the Arnold lunch at, at the Fireside Cafe. But I think Steve also touched on something, just remembered, which was the, the um, uh, binging day, the junk day. And it was things not 
really that bad. But a, a famous, I believe there was, I think, his mother's restaurant or his auntie's re a recipe for apple strudel. So they, they would go to a place that would make this apple strudel according to the recipe that he was able to. That was the influence he was having, whether it would be a steak and egg meal, scrambled eggs, you know, the wholemeal bread, all this kind of stuff. So they've gone from serving relatively normal, but still wholesome food to bodybuilder specific meals because of the group that Arnold would bring in en masse, eight or nine guys from the gym, all sitting down, all eating together. And then people started to find out this is where Arnold went. And so they started having his meals served to the fans. So the other guys that were coming, if Arnold went there, it's got to be good enough for me. So I'll go there. So that, that's the kind of influence he had. Those are the kind of diets that were on. And Steve's quite correct. I'm, I'm, the little bit that I know about Arnold's diet, probably a little bit fattier than maybe some of the modern bodybuilders. Uh, a little bit more carb heavy in the morning in terms of ingestion and getting ready for the gym or whatever else. But without all of the drugs and the medication and the supplements that we would be using now to get maximized the effect that the food was going to have. So the, the diet had to be everything on its own with no assistance. We're not talking necessarily, you know, silly low carb stuff. They weren't doing, I believe, um, uh, fasted cardio or indeed as, as, as Steve's me is famous for, they were doing next to no fasting at all. So there's lots of things that they could do now and lots of adaptions to the diet that they could have now and lots of things they could take with the food which they weren't doing then and still managed to achieve some pretty amazing physiques. Uh, genetically, I'm guessing Arnold uh, uh, got away with a little bit. I think there's some the, the bits of him, even now he rides a bike, so riding a bike at that time out for some jogging or whatever else. But we're not talking about excessive amounts of cardio. We're not doing two or three hours in the gym on cardio. They probably spend more time training their abs and working on the vacuums than they were doing cardio. So. If anything, it was more of a calorie-controlled diet with different manipulations of these, say, pre-carbs, pre-workout, pre uh, slightly more fat than perhaps what we would consider to be healthy now. But the whole diet, as Steve has already said, is, is a lot cleaner, is a lot healthier, is a lot more wholesome than the food that we know. And this is with no food prep. Uh, though they did start to get into the idea of uh, cooking certain meals for yourself at certain times of the day and, and start to get into the old, what we will say in the UK, a packed lunch of, which would be a food prepped meal. And that started to come in towards the end of Arnold's time, but not before. So, you know, hard work and wholesome food guys compared to how we would manipulate the diet and, and what's available to us now by, by comparison. Back to you, Steve. So let's get into the, into the workouts uh, because uh, we talked about that with the Dorian stuff and you know, the workouts back then, Arnold went, it wasn't a coincidence mobster. I don't think it was a coincidence that he chose to immigrate to the United States and go to gold's gym. So, you know, back then in those days in the seventies, and I'm sure it was the same way in England, obviously, you didn't have gyms on every corner like we do today. Now there's a gym on every corner. But back then, if you wanted a gym, you'd have to go to a big city. You'd have to go to New York City. You'd have to go to Los Angeles, as Arnold did. So he was very lucky. He got to train at the best gym in the world. And that was really 
one of the things that he did, that was like the number one thing he did. It wasn't even, you know, I'm not even going to get into his training yet. I'm going to let you talk about his training. But the gym environment is so freaking important because a gym environment is, you know, you're around people who take, who have a certain mentality and you're able to feed off that mentality. And um, we're doing this podcast the same time as Gold Gym in Venice is actually closing because Gold Gym is going bankrupt. Um, so I'm not sure if the gym, specific gym is closing, but they, they are going bankrupt. So that shows you how things have changed. Today, it's all about franchise gyms, gym on every corner, lower the membership fees, basically stranglehold other companies. Back then it was, I'm sorry, this is the gym. This is the only gym in town. So you're either going to work out here or you're not going to work out at all. I'm just reminded, I was very, very fortunate, and I mean very fortunate, that I, I managed to train in London in a place called Matrix Gym, which was very, very close to the American-style gyms that we are familiar with now. And it was the only one of that size and dimensions, 8,000 square feet in, in southeast London, where, where I was born and brought up. And I, the, a Gold's Gym franchise opened in North London, and I went and made a point of going over there because I've got some idea in my mind about buying a pair of Gold's Gym training boots which unfortunately didn't have in my size and again it was i think ten thousand square feet and that is kind of common now but at the time and and arnold sports from the time especially we're talking about places that literally were called the dungeon gym one of the gyms in venice beach was called the dungeon gym and places in basements and cellars and outbuildings and whatever else and gold's gym i believe which is four thousand square feet as was that particular one on on on, on the one that Arnold trained in, that was one of the largest American style, what we would consider American style gyms. Now, comparative to that time, which would be late 60s, 70s, up to 1980, which is when I started training, where I am now, the gym that I can go to, hopefully open very soon, is about 4,000 square feet. And there are, I can, within... 20 to 30 minutes, there, are, there is one which is a local civic county uh, council gym of the same size. There are two uh, American-style gyms, two valleys over, which are absolutely huge, 10, 12,000 square feet. These things weren't common at that time. And in fact, one of the advantages he had with Gold's Gym was that Joe Gold was making the equipment for bodybuilders making sure that it run freely, making sure the stacks were heavy, making sure that the angles were perfect because Joe himself had been a bodybuilder. And so not only did you have that, you had the skylights in golds, you had uh, Art Zeller taking photographs because the light was amazing when it came in off the beach. You had the atmosphere, I believe, 35, 40 guys. And we're talking about 20 or 30 people in that group competing. You've ever been in a, a, a decent gym when you've got half a dozen compete people in there that are competing for a bodybuilding or fitness or a weightlifting competition, you can understand the atmosphere. Now in, in Gold's gym, you're talking about 20 or 30 guys, high level guys winning amateur and pro level uh, competitions through the States. And I believe, again, I think Pump and Iron, isn't there a scene in Pump and Iron, but they've got the number of days left of the Mr. Olympia up on the wall. And it's kind of being talked off every single day. That, is the environment that you've got Arnold in. And that is part of the reason why. Can you imagine, Steve, can you imagine you and I going to Golds in those days with 20 guys that were all competing? 
the workouts are going to be off the scale. Just, 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 just yeah. And, and I don't think you the, could just go in there unless you knew someone. I think that you'd be too intimidated to even walk in there. You know. So, <laughs> but I mean, yeah. I, I've been in. I've been in a gym with um, a fitness figure compete competitor, an IFBB pro, and myself, and all three of us. I think it was only ten or twelve people in the gym. So a third of the gym of us competing athletes. And oh my god! I mean, we, we were kind of waving at each other in between sets and whatever else, admiring such as it was the, the driving determination. Can you imagine being around another twenty guys all doing that kind of stuff? And the ego—it would definitely push. It would push you, put a lot of peer pressure on you, and push you. And I think a lot of people in the process would crack. They'd either uh, get injured or they would just mentally crack. They wouldn't be able to handle that. So it's. Yeah, you, you would have to – it really, you know, you have to push – you have to really push, push, push and to, to, to improve at this. And Arnold's succeeding in that environment. Arnold's dominating. Yeah. He's, he's the guy over in the corner everybody's looking at. So there you go. I mean, that's, that's what you're kind of dealing with there. I've, been, I, I've not trained around people that I'm competing against. They've all been all over the country and we've come together for a competition. I've not had someone else in the gym at the same time who's competing with me or against me. Uh, I can set up with one exception and I managed to beat him. Um, uh, but, uh, and again, that, that's driving you to succeed. That's driving you, you want, you know, you want to win in the gym and then you're going to win on the platform. You're going to win on the stage or whatever else. To be able to do that with uh, Frank Zane and, and all these other guys, uh, 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 visiting literally traveling staying at gold staying around venice beach and coming to gold's gym and literally for the last two weeks of a competition making sure that none of the top guys do that now you're lucky if they're flying for one workout these guys were coming in for two three weeks ahead of the competition specifically to train with the competitors to see what they look like and then to go out and, and smash the fuck out of these guys on stage whether it was an amateur class or a pro class or, or preliminary competition. Can you imagine uh, Phil Heath going to somebody else's gym and training at their gym and run up to the Olympia or, or Ronnie or any of the other guys that wouldn't do that now? They've stayed where they are. Uh, but in fact, if you think about it, this is the thing that's changed in terms of modern bodybuilding. We no longer, and this comes off the back of the, the Dorian interview, no longer felt the need to go to California to work out. You can have a great East Coast or West Coast workout. You can have a great European workout or a British workout. And then so long as you flew in early enough to, to uh, get over the flight, land, get a couple of workouts in, give yourselves a couple of days to adapt, and then get on stage. Whereas in the days of Arnold, they were traveling down and minimum two weeks out of the competition would be in Venice Beach and training together and doing those last few workouts and keeping an eye on each other. So I can only imagine what that would have been like and as I say, if it's as hard as we think it would have been, if the atmosphere was as driven and, and, and as uh, productive to training as we could imagine, it might have been burnout, psychological. Can you imagine turning up into the gym and there's the other guy and he looks better than you do now and it's two weeks to go? Perhaps <laughs> we'll get on the bus and go back home. And Arnold was dominating in that situation. He, he, he would see you out of the corner of his eye. He was destroying guys when they got there. <laughs> make you want to put your coat back on and get back on the bus and go home 
and you've only been there 20 minutes. Oh my God, the, the psychers. Oh my good grief. Steve. Well, I think, I think the things that have changed since the 70s to now, I don't think the training has changed in terms of volume because I think guys still train. Back then, it was thought that he trained about six, six days a week, which is not anything shocking. I mean, I used to train six days a week when I was competing. Um, and he would train each muscle group two, three times a week. I don't think that's, that's shocking either. Um, and certain muscle groups like abs and calves, you can even train them like six days a week. Those, those yep. are certain body parts. Um, we're talking 20, 30 sets per body part. I don't think that's too much of a change from what guys do today. I think what's changed is back then they didn't have distractions. They didn't have a TV in the gym. They didn't have an iPhone buzzing in your pocket. They didn't have you texting some girl during your workout. They didn't have you taking a phone call during your workout. And I think that today, a lot of uh, even the guys at the high levels, they have those distractions and they have, you know, too much. There's too much distractions now. Back then, it was focus. That was the number one thing that Arnold talks about with his workouts from, from back then is that he was laser focused 100% on his workouts. Now, that today, are guys capable of doing that? Um, a lot of them have... They can't. They cannot focus now. You have ADHD. You have ADD. They have, you know, this is just something that they grow, grew up with. And we're seeing this trend more and more. And some of these bodybuilders cannot take it to the next level because of that. So I think that's the biggest change in terms of being focused on your training. You're there to handle your business. You handle your business. You do your workout and you leave. And then today, there's too much dicking around. There's too much... I want to take a picture of myself to put on Instagram. There's too much distractions. You're getting um, how many messages a day? You're getting hundreds of messages a day that you have to respond to now because these guys now, they have to train people via the internet. So they get tons of people hitting them up through Skype, through emails, through Instagram, through Facebook. So that's the biggest change that we've seen. It's not so much the workouts. It's the mental aspect and the distractions. And, you know, I, if it was today, Arnold would, would probably have to do that to make ends meet, you know? I'm thinking of two things when it comes to Arnold's uh, training. One would be uh, he was very astute at picking up tips from the other guys in terms of if they would change an angle and they, they'd improve their chest. Uh, if they change an angle and improve their arms, Arnold was quite, quite good at uh, uh, grabbing hold of that piece of the snippet of information and adapting his training. There's some suggestion of the double splits, but I don't think this was necessarily, it would be a big muscle in the morning, a much smaller muscle, a bit of polish, look a calf thing in the afternoon or whatever else, uh, if he wasn't busy or if he wasn't at school. I think there's another element as well uh, that Steve touches on with regards to the distractions. The modern bodybuilder, in some ways, actually, he's, by contract with the supplement companies and their sponsors is required to do some of these things which in those days were not so if you've got uh, literally reading books and chilling out on the beach with the guys and sunbathing taking time out in the afternoon to go off and 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 get some natural color on their bones uh, versus what's going on now and certainly um the distractions in modern gym, whether it's uh, MTV, whether it's in music or whatever else, versus a gold gym of before, when literally the only music you had such as it was, was the clanging of the weights and whatever else. I mean, part of Arnold's training after the Mr. Olympia was when Joe had sold the gold gym name on 
to the company that owned the franchises was to go off uh, when Joe came back and set up World's Gym. World's Gym was famous for having no music, specifically no big screens and no music. Joe wanted it like a church. And Arnold uh, was training early in the morning with the other guys. Lee Priest tells his stories many times with uh, Dave Palumbo about training there. And, uh, and, and Joe would not put up with any music. He didn't even like you guys wearing headphones. So yeah, very much uh, you come to the gym, you trained, you worked. You, you, the, the very few distractions, very little other stuff going on. And, certain, and the only photographer, so they, but they didn't have mobile phones, certainly didn't have mobile phones with cameras. The only photographer they had was, as I mentioned earlier on, Art Zeller going around with his grab shorts with the famous black and white pictures of those, those the pumping iron times and, and of Arnold, especially the pumping iron and Arnold uh, training photographs taken by Art Zeller in the gym, Bill Dobbins as well, all black and white, all hardcore training. No, the reason for the black and white photographs is that you would have to set up the lights for the color photography, that you would have to have the reflector panels for the color photography, but the black and white was a lot more uh, allowed for a, a very little accoutrements, add-ons to the camera that were required, weren't needed for black and white. So they could go around with a little camera, take these shots, not get in the ways of the guys versus what they'd have to do now. <clears throat> and that's just guys training together with mobile phones and trying to get the right light. They had none of that. Very, the only, I mean, what was I just thinking about was the famous argument between him and Mike Metz in regards to the volume approach. And here's the thing, guys. What worked for Arnold worked for Arnold. He practically needed the volume. Would he have been a better bodybuilder with a lower volume approach? I don't think so. So <clears throat> the 20 to 30 sets that we've mentioned, training chest and back together. I'm not seeing him benefiting by the heavy duty Mike Mensah style of training with, with the, the, the much lower uh, level of volume. That works for me with my genetics and for what I do, but I don't think Arnold would have been the bodybuilder that he was with a lower volume, more heavy duty uh, approach versus what he was doing and what all the other guys were doing. Um, the focus, I think Steve's mentioned again, that would that be the, the thing that people talk about when they said they've seen Arnold training. Uh, there's a certain ferocious, you know, I think he talks about enjoying it and there are photographs when you catch the look in his eye and he's almost baring his teeth uh, and, and, and growling as, he, as he's pulling on his stuff and getting his things done. And again, that's part of, again, as I mentioned it earlier, being around competitive people, the drive to want to succeed again in the gym on that workout that each moment that you're in there is not to be wasted that you are to tear this stuff up you put as you know go crazy on the low cable row go crazy on the bench press want to do one more set than the other guy talking about beating the other guy by three reps and all that kind of stuff so that that's where that atmosphere the famous photographs and again i believe pumping iron with ed corning Arnold collapsing after squats and it has to get him off the floor. That, that's the kind of stuff. What about uh, prior, I think he was doing this stuff in Austria, Steve, where they were doing the story of driving out with the girls. Two girls, two, a training partner and himself driving out and training in the forest like barbarians. Drinking beer, having a bonfire and, and then taking weights with them in the cars and training in the forest. <laughs> Crazy stuff. But driven so even when he's dating even when he's going on a date night guys he's taking the weights with him and drinking 
wine in the forest and cooking meat over the fire or whatever. Uh, I, I, I would have loved to have been, a, 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 they call it, a fly on the wall and watching these guys day in, day out, six, seven, eight o'clock in the morning, tearing stuff up just around the atmosphere. Can you imagine you go there, you watch what they're doing, you go back to your place and, and you do what you've got to do. But certainly for me, it would be a high volume for me, but it worked. Let's not muck about guys, it worked. This is working for all these guys. Every single person in the gym is doing 20 sets, 30 sets, every single one. And uh, I don't think this, I think Steve's quite correct. We might have more machines to have access to. We might be able to play around with the angles a little bit more. They didn't have access to hammer strength. They had some cable machines. What we would, they, they didn't even have what we would think of as a modern 45 degree leg press. So they were, you know, the, the stuff that they were training on, lots of squats, bar on your back, guys, benching, maybe with an incline. I believe Arnold, uh, as far as the, the modern style of training, paid a short visit for which he was paid for over to Nautilus with Arthur Jones trying to get them to do the, the Nautilus style of training. But that was very, very brief. He was paid to go. I think it was a couple of weeks maximum. I think Sergio, you've got a famous photograph of Sergio in one of the early Nautilus pullovers. So you've got Dorian, by comparison, a lot lower volume, using some of the heavy duty and, and some of the Nautilus stuff by comparison. Um, and then Arnold, with the volume, much, much more volume than I would do. But relative, yeah, it's the same as what the guys are doing now. I don't think it's too different at all, and especially from the few proper training logs that I'm seeing, almost exactly the same. So, yeah, I think this is where the drug stuff actually would make more of an influence and where the dietary manipulation would make more of an influence. What about the modern cycle, Steve? So we, so we get on to that? Yeah, so I talked about the modern cycle a little bit earlier, but we can touch on it again. I, like I said earlier, instead of a lot of primo, they're hitting a lot of trend now. That's yeah. that's the big change. Instead of Deca, they're you know they're they're taking maybe EQ. They're taking some uh, testosterone. They're not afraid to mess with testosterone now like they were back then. They're not afraid of that bloat. They're taking yeah, just... Anadrol, Anadrol. You know, it's it's more yeah more aggressive. The ACH, insulin, the DMP. I'm going to think of two things. One that you mentioned earlier on, and, and I wanted to, wanted to raise a point then. I started training in 1980, and all we had as an AI then was Novadex. And literally, as you say, all, Arnold's time, there was next to nothing, and Novadex probably only came in at the very end, at the end of his career and the beginning of my starting to train in the gym at the age of 15. Um, I, I would be, and it's not with, with the, the, the suggested cycles I see, and I think Arnold would have been using peptides as well. Uh, and and with, 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 with the, the, someone like Chris Aceto and others sitting in down and, and, and walking him through these things, and uh, Chad Nichols walking him through the, the stuff that is available now and the dietary manipulation that was available now. And as I said earlier on, I guarantee his drive to succeed would mean he'd be looking at these things for sure. And I would put $10 down right now to say that he would be doing some of these peptides. The HGH, we know for a fact, uh, he, his great uh, cinematic rival, is uh, uh, Sylvester Stallone, has used uh, growth hormone. So 
um, thinking just of the film careers of both of these guys, uh, Arnold and uh, Sylvester both got into amazing shape for movies. Sylvester especially ripped on a, on a smaller frame and a slighter physique. But Arnold's looked pretty damn good on camera. And as um, training for Conan was uh, for the 1980s Mr. Olympia around the same time, the, the great story of him not competing and then suddenly competing on the day. So I, I, I would best guess with Arnold, the growth hormone was starting to be used at that time. AIs would have started to be used around that time, so at the end of his actual bodybuilding career. And if peptides uh, and insulin and DMP was all available to them, my best feeling is that Arnold would definitely have uh, put his, stuck his toe in the water there and uh, tried some of these things out to see if they work for him. And being a sensible guy with the, the prescription drugs from a doctor that hopefully got to these things prescribed properly and administered properly by a doctor. I mean, one of the things we advise on the forums constantly is a blood test, guys. So if you've got a, a doctor who's prescribing you these drugs and, and checking you over, you should be getting regular blood tests. And of course, Arnold is a film star and trying to get in condition, can certainly afford to have the best advice and the best doctors to uh, give him uh, information and monitor his uh, use of these particular products and whatever else. Yeah, back to you, Steve. Yeah, and um, AIs, you mentioned AIs. Uh, they didn't have AIs at that time. I think you meant the, the anti-estrogens, like the Novodex. The Novodex was around. The Novodex mm. came around more in the but, 60s, but the Arimidex did not even exist till the late 80s. So they definitely did not have access to the AIs, but they could have. I mean, who knows? He could have known about Novodex at that time but i don't think that there's any evidence that they did i don't think i think it was more toward the 80s where some gurus what, came, came up with the idea yeah yeah very very end of his uh competitive career and the very very beginning of my my training in 1980 there's literally a, a lap over about three to four years but at that point it's kind of like you know what the hell, what advantage is it going to give him if he's, he's training for movies and already acting in a movie, done two or three movies at that point, to then come in and, and, and then there's so there's drugs that the other guys are using. He's literally going to be using it right at the end of his career, if at all. Uh, so it might have been available as a prescription drug, but I don't think, as you say, that the bodybuilders were using it in that particular way. And so literally at the very, very end, probably for his last Mr. Olympia, and I mean for his last competition, so, you know, the other thing that we sometimes hear in uh, modern bodybuilding, and it's probably just because these guys are having these occasional, as we do on the forums, they're sitting down at that time when he was competing and maybe having these conversations. And it was the, what happens, I believe, around Arnold's time is you'd all have the West Coast, East Coast. What are the guys doing on the East Coast? What are the guys doing on the West Coast? What's the cycle that they're doing over there? What are they doing to try and beat us here? So they're going to have these conversations. One of the things you also get with uh, top Olympia athletes is you're going to get people that might be out there on the leading edge of things, get in touch with you and, 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 and offer these things sometimes to you, whether that's in terms of information or advice or actual drugs. You know, it, it is what it is in terms of being a top professional bodybuilder where that a doctor who's a bodybuilding fan is going to say, have you tried this? Have you heard of that? There's something we're researching on right now that might be of interest to you. And hopefully you get the right advice and the right business information to enable you to take advantage of that. 
I mean, we, we've addressed it in an, another podcast in terms of what the modern bodybuilder, especially with some of the crazy cycles are doing. This is why I think, and it's more of a suggestion on my part, there's information available, there will be drugs available that are just coming into the scene at that time, late, late, late 70s, early 80s, but used by bodybuilders that have been available for prescription drugs for medical reasons for quite a while. And I can see Arnold, if he was still driven to carry on competing and being a top professional bodybuilder, taking advantage of those things then. But as Steve quite correctly says, with regards to the AIs that we're used to, these weren't available. Uh, uh, would he have used them if they was? Yeah, sure, 100%, because as I say, driven to, to win. Um, but available now, yeah, of course. We have that advantage. We can do those things. And in fact, that's what's going to allow Arnold and, and people of his ill to take greater amounts of drugs and hopefully have, comparatively again, lesser side effects because he can protect himself better. So, yeah, that's what we're, that's what we're talking about here, guys. The, what he did, what he would do, what he would look like. And again, Arnold the man, Arnold the bodybuilder. That's what we're, that's what we're addressing here, guys. Back to you, Steve. Yeah, so I think we've covered just about everything. Maybe the, the, the one thing that we didn't touch on is the pump, because Arnold talks a lot about the pump. I think the pump is less, <laughs> is less of an issue today as it was back then. But I think yeah. a lot of that has to do with it's so much easier today to get a pump. Because there's, like, you can go to the supplement store and buy something to give you a pump. So I think yeah. that might have something to do with it. Um, but I think in terms of, you know, actual training, the training itself hasn't changed with some of the little nuances have changed in, be in between there. And um, I think in another, you know, 20, 30 years, it's going to be harder and harder to find a, a, a good quality hardcore gym. I think it's all going to be franchise run because those are economically the successful gyms that survive. Like right now, economically, these little, these little gyms like golds and, and, and that are, that had started out like as mom and, you know, single, you know, single gyms and stuff. I know it's now a franchise, but at the time, those types of gyms, they cannot exist today economically because you cannot charge someone a fee every month and keep those gyms open. Now it's all franchise. A franchise, franchisee pays a huge fee, opens up the gym, you know, try and then tries to make back that money because that money that was put forth was by a bunch of investors, not by the actual franchisee himself. So it's all about borrowing money, paying it back over time, owning a gym, making a little bit of a profit here and there and kind of keeping it afloat. And now we're seeing a transition away from that. So yeah, it's completely different, but you, you know, what? at the end of the day, you have to, you know, no matter what happens, you, you have to adjust. It's a, it's a good thing. It's also a bad thing. It's a good thing because now there's a gym on any corner, but it's a bad thing in that the gym environment sucks today. It really, really sucks. Um, so any final words, officer, before uh, we close up? I just, on, on that gym thing, and that would literally be my final thing today. So one of the things that I've said for some years now, uh, and, and very much at the moment, as uh, Steve Speaker quite correctly says, the, the, um, the only way that mum and pop gym survives, mum and pop gyms survive, is that you have to own the equipment outright. And it almost doesn't need to be your main source of income. Uh, because the, what we would call a proper bodybuilding gym or proper weightlifting gym for that matter doesn't really make the cash and one of the reasons why the the modern gyms can struggle including the gold gym franchise is because they do have these bills that steve says yes and they have the lease a lot of them don't even own the equipment in the gym they lease the equipment it's, it's being paid for but it hasn't been paid for 
And so you, the, 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 I'm actually kind of in a perverse way from just for my own evil purposes, waiting for some of the uh, bigger gyms that might be uh, struggling, a la Gold's Gym as suggested, to, to go bankrupt so I can buy some of their kit with my savings and put them into my uh, well-equipped home gym right here. And again, I'm fortunate in the position that I, the guys that have been training and, and contributing to, to whatever, there is nowhere near. I've got the money and got what they put in doesn't even come close to it. I, I've as I said, there's, um, I, I, I think we can learn. I think we're going to make the final, final thing for me is going to be uh, from, uh, as an athlete, a weightlifting athlete in my case, as a bodybuilding athlete, as someone who trains, look what Arnold did. He used the determination and the drive to become the champion bodybuilder and took that and put it into so many other things, the discipline that he applied to his education, coming over from Austria and then going to uh, UCLA, to uh, film, to politics, to making money. He took those disciplines. If you're under a 300-pound barbell in the gym and you're straining your mightiest to, to drive another rep out, if you're squatting four or five hundred pounds, if you're deadlifting five or six hundred pounds, you ought to be able to apply your determination, your drive, the thing that makes you want to do these things is sweat and tear your skin and maybe scuff your shins deadlifting or whatever, and take that and put that into business, put it into education, put it into your life. That's the lesson that Arnold's going to teach us. He, 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 we don't learn maybe so much from his uh, wanting to take more drugs than some of the athletes, but every other single aspect, using every single hour of the day, the way he's done with the motivational speeches to, to the graduates, that's what you should take away, guys. You should learn to be as driven in order to be as successful and succeed in life as Arnold did with what he did. Back to you, Steve. All right, guys. So I'm going to try my best accent to, to tell you guys to uh, – can you tell I'm changing my accent when I do that? Ten more reps. Can, can you do an American accent? I can do Arnold accent. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like there with the Joe Weider accent. We've all got to – the Joe Weider's kind of speaking and you've got to do the Arnold. Arnold says you've got to eat your food and do your reps in the gym, guys. That's good. That's good. I think I think it's much easier for a British person to do other accents yeah. than an American. All right, guys. Great talking. All right, guys. Listen, we're over time, but we covered a lot in this podcast. If you guys want more information, hit us up on the podcast. Let the um, producers know what you want us to talk about. Let me know. Let Mobster know. And we will talk about it on this podcast. So, guys, uh, this is episode, is it 103, right, Mobster? Yeah, 103. Yep, we're at 103. So, hopefully, we'll be at 200 uh, before you know it. So, keep supporting the show. Keep listening to us, evolutionary.org, hardcore 103. We'll talk to you guys next week. Take care. Bye-bye.